You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, political chaos continues in Brazil after its parliament voted to impeach President Dilma Rousseff over accusations she broke budgetary laws. Our correspondent, Tom Hennigan, is in Brasilia. Simon Carswell reports from New York on the latest twists in the US presidential race. And in Syria, an independent organisation has been investigating alleged war crimes committed by the regime of Bashar al-Assad. We'll be speaking with Ben Taub, a journalist with New Yorker magazine who first reported on the story. I'm Chris Dooley, Worldview is an Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. At the weekend, Brazil's political crisis intensified when members of Congress voted by a large majority to recommend the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff. If the Upper House of Parliament, the Senate, accepts the recommendation, which looks increasingly likely, the President could find herself suspended from office by uh, the 12th of May. I'm joined by our South America correspondent, Tom Hennigan, in Brasilia. Um, Tom, we'll recap in a moment on Sunday's vote in Congress, but, but first, how has Dilma Rousseff responded to this extraordinary decision by parliamentarians to seek to remove her from office? Uh, we were at a, a press conference uh, that she held for the Brazilian media yesterday, that Monday evening, and she looked tired, but I think everyone in Brasilia is tired. It was a marathon um, session that started on Friday uh, afternoon and with very few stops went all the way up until um, around midnight on Sunday. So uh, the whole city is tired. Um, she did, though, seem relatively calm uh, in the weeks building up to this vote. At several of her public announcements, she she uh, seemed highly uh, angry, irritated. Some of her speeches um, were, were quite intemperate. Um, yesterday, not in front of her supporters, but in front of the media. She even showed flashes of good humour. She was uh, able to joke with the press pack at at certain moments. Um, But she seemed very, very firm in her conviction. Uh, One, that what is happening is uh, completely unjust and unfair. And two, that she is going to fight this to the end. So there had been... Uh, reports that uh, within the workers' party, her worker, her ruling workers' party, uh, that um, some of the leaders would have thought that, look, if the impeachment vote passes, even before it gets to Congress, if it passes the lower house, even before it gets to Congress, um, her her uh, tenure is as good as done, and it would be better if the party started advocating for new elections. Um, and they could run former President uh, Lula, who is still has a, a, a solid base of support. Um, and because the opposition is so discredited as well, the, the, the Workers' Party think that they will be competitive in any new election. That remains to be seen, but they believe it. But uh, yesterday, uh, President Rousseff made it very clear that she is not for resigning and that she's going to fight this to the end. Um, she's going to consider taking this back to the Supreme Court to, to argue again that it is all unconstitutional. And she believes that the Senate, which is a more favourable um, chamber to her than the lower house, that it could conceivably uh, knock back the impeachment um, uh, motion, which again requires a two-thirds majority um, to, to happen. So she was very defiant um, uh, and absolutely convinced that she's not just doing this for herself and her own hold on power, but she's doing it in the defense of democracy because she believes what is happening is a violation of 
what she keeps referring to as Brazil's immature democracy and that she needs to make a stand here. Otherwise, impeachment could become a kind of a regular or impeachment battles could become a regular feature of every Brazilian presidency. Um, yeah, I mean, just I suppose to come that point about wh- why they are seeking to impeach her. Brazil, as we know, is it's, it's beset at the moment by corruption scandals. Looking at it from the outside, it almost seems like Dilma Rousseff is the only person not, you know, directly uh, tainted or, 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 or accused with, with um, um, in terms of, of any of the, the, the current scandals that are taking place. So can you remind us what exactly is her alleged offence? The, the motion that passed on Sunday uh, is that she broke... Brazil's uh, fiscal responsibility laws. Brazil, like many Latin American countries, has had a major problem in in having governments that historically have overspent, and that has led them into borrowing, indebtedness, default, or inflation, which at certain times has turned into hyperinflation. So Brazil passed fiscal responsibility laws that said, you know, that that governments have to be very careful in adhering to the budgets that pass through the legislature. Now, before uh, Rousseff um, became president, her predecessors had kind of had a couple of fiddles that allowed them to, in a certain way, get around that law, but only at the margin. What she did was when she ramped up spending during her first term, and particularly in the lead up to her re-election, when the economy started to sputter, she uh, engaged in certain practices that really saw what they call here um, the you know the the uh, maneuvering around the, the fiscal responsibility law that exploded and it became a much bigger uh, a problem for Brazil. So you had international uh, markets looking at it, going, well, you know, now they're cooking the books. Before they were just you know they were a little fiddle here and there. Now they're full on cooking the books. They started uh, confidence leaking out of the economy. Brazil ended up getting downgraded. And all sorts of problems flowed from that. So that's the actual motion that passed the House, that she broke um, fiscal responsibility laws. And there is very little doubt that she did. Yesterday, she didn't even deny that what she had done was done. But she said, look, everyone did it. There was a precedent there. We didn't think it was illegal. The jurists we consulted said, no, 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 there's a precedent. You can do this. But it was the scale of what she did that has led to this problem. But really, the, the motion is just an excuse for many of Brazil's political class to get rid of her for two reasons. One, because her party is, as you say, up to its neck in the Petrobras scandal um, in the state oil giant, which was looted by all parties, it would seem, in, in Brazil, all the big parties in Brazil, not just her workers' party, and has left Brazil's biggest company flat on its back at the moment and a a massive recession. Brazil is going through its worst recession in decades, possibly its longest ever. Uh, There's no sign of it ending anytime soon. And so that's what's driving public anger at her administration and has opened the gap for uh, Congress to be able to drive through this this impeachment motion, even though the motion doesn't actually say anything about the Petrobras scandal. But given Tom, as you say, I suppose politicians everywhere and, and uh, min- finance ministers everywhere are accused from time to time of breaking fiscal responsibility rules or requirements or laws or whatever. It does make it, a, it's essentially a, a, a political charge against her, isn't it? And does, does that mean that is, is she correct and are, are supporters correct to characterise what's happening as a coup? That is a, a very controversial debate at the moment in Brazil. I think the best thing at the moment is to go with 
the, the country's Supreme Court, which has a majority of justices appointed by Workers' Party presidents. So all uh, the majority of the, of the Supreme Court is made up of, of justices appointed by Lula or Dilma, and they have said everything is happening within the Constitution. But even, even if it is happening within the Constitution, um, an impeachment process is a sign that something has broken. I think many people remember that the breakdown of relations between Bill Clinton and, and the Republican Congress in America in the 1990s led to his impeachment over what many people saw as quite frivolous um, charges, uh, and he defeated that. Um, so really, the, the government is claiming that there is a coup. You have a, a Supreme Court that's saying, no, this is all happening within the Constitution. But it is still a very, very messy, ugly process where, um, in many ways, the political system is trying to expel Rousseff for various reasons. Uh, some of them because, as you said, the party is, is her party is up to its neck in corruption because of her own mismanagement of the, of the economy. But you also hear uh, in the background many people saying really why the political system is trying to get rid of Rousseff is because she has refused to clamp down on the investigation into Petrobras. And many of her allies who are being accused in the scandal have deserted her because they think we have to get rid of this woman because if we don't, the, the federal police are going to show up on our door and arrest us as well. So um, there's there's that going on in the background as well. And Tom, you, you wrote a very strong piece on, on irishtimes.com about the manner in which the ballot recommending impeachment was conducted in Congress. It wasn't the most dignified spectacle, was it? It, it, was, um, it was shameful for many Brazilians, even those who were uh, for impeachment, which passed overwhelmingly, many of them took to social media to express their, their shame and embarrassment and anger at what was going on in the Congress. Um, the, the level of debate was absolutely um, awful. Uh, the, there was absolutely no decorum. There was shoving matches and there were people trying to lead the chamber in songs, singing anti, um, anti-Rusov ditties. Um, many of the members were walking around with flags on their shoulders and it was it was just a complete lack of any seriousness for what was the most important legislative session since the same chamber voted to impeach um, uh, another president back in 1992. And for many Brazilians, even those who are um, fed up with Rousseff, particularly those who go, look, you know, I don't necessarily think she deserves to be impeached, but at the moment she doesn't have the ability to govern the country. We're being suffocated by this recession. Something needs to change. Maybe it's best that she does go. Many of those people who think along those lines looked at Sunday and went, oh my God, you know, like we might get rid of her, but what's coming next? Because the quality of the political class in Brazil has been exposed by this scandal um, and the impeachment process to not only be very corrupt, but to be to be deeply, deeply mediocre. Mediocre might actually be too kind a word for many of the deputies in the lower house that um, voted to get rid of Rousseff on Sunday. Okay, and Tom, briefly, just to, to wrap up, um, at this stage, how do you rate Rousseff's chances of surviving? Uh, will she be president when the Olympics, Olympic Games come to Brazil, uh, to Rio, Rio de Janeiro in the summer? I, her own determination is is very clear. The president of the Senate, uh, who is a sometime ally, but I would rather classify him as a fair-weather friend, he said he saw the whole impeachment process wrapping up sometime in September. So that would mean that um, you know she wouldn't have lost her job but um, formally by that stage. But within, we reckon, two to three weeks, as you pointed out in your introduction, the Senate will vote to accept 
the impeachment uh, uh, motion um, to take it into their chamber to debate it. They have six months then to do it. At that moment, she is suspended. So it is unlikely that she will be acting president at the time that the Olympics arrive. OK, well, a very interesting few weeks ahead. Uh, Tom Hennigan in Brasilia, thank you for that. It's an important week in the race to establish who would succeed Barack Obama as President of the United States, with both the Republican and Democratic parties holding their primaries in the state of New York, one of the biggest prizes in terms of delegate numbers on offer for the rival candidates in both parties. A feature of the Democratic Party race has been the strong levels of support for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders among young people. Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent, has been out talking to young people at a Bernie Sanders rally to find out what it is that appeals to them about Sanders over uh, the Democratic frontrunner, Hillary Clinton. First Bernie rally? First rally ever, actually. I've never been to a political rally in my life. First Bernie rally? Um, this is my first Bernie rally, yeah. I've noticed that the age profile at the Bernie rallies tends to be a lot younger than the Hillary rallies. Uh, why do you think that is? Because I think that the young people, until Bernie came along, were not involved because they didn't think that it would do them any good to be involved. I think that they, they just think it's status quo, the same thing all the time, voting isn't going to make a difference. But Bernie, I think they're, they're seeing speaks from the heart. He tells the same story he's been telling for 35, 40 years, and it resonates with them. This is like the first candidate I'm like so excited for. Like, I feel like Bernie should be the nominee and he should be our president. You're feeling the burn. Feeling the burn. <laughs> Why are you feeling the burn? Uh, I feel that Bernie Sanders is a very honest candidate. He's always... He's very consistent with what he believes. How old are you? I'm eight. Why are you supporting Bernie? Uh, I just believe what he says. You believe what he says? Why do you believe what he says? Uh, he says it in a nice way and he says it like he means it. He has like the most credibility. Like He's been doing stuff since the civil rights movement. Like You see Bernie there getting arrested and you see that he's been sticking to his word all these years. Meanwhile with Hillary, you see her flip-flopping and lying, and it's it's kind of disgusting to me. What about Hillary Clinton? Uh, she's okay. Well, what specifically of Bernie's policies do you like? What, what, what do you like most about what he has to say? I just think education should be free for everyone, just like he says. Yeah. Um, it's like one of the basic rights of our country. I think that the breaking of the big banks is not the most important to me personally, but the most important thing that I think he's going to do for this country. One of the complaints that Bernie has is that the system is rigged. He talks about the economy, but there's a lot of criticism in the last couple of days about the, the nominating system being rigged as well mm-hmm. and the superdelegates. What do you think of his criticism about that? The fact I think that, he's absolutely yeah, right. The whole system is rigged. Superdelegates are there to keep people like him from getting the nomination. The superdelegate system is a flawed system. You can't get around that. I think that it's up to this candidate, whoever it ends up being, the President of the United States to change that system. Do you think he's going to win next week in the primary here in New York? Uh, I think it's going to be very close and if he does it's going to change the, the tide of the election. I'm joined now on the line by Simon Carswell from New York who put together that Vox Pop that you've heard just now with um, supporters of Bernie Sanders. Um, Simon, uh, Bernie Sanders has been having a very good run in this campaign. He's won seven of the last eight contests and we've heard some of the reasons why in that segment just now. But is New York the moment uh, when Hillary Clinton will take a decisive hold of this, uh, this race for, for the Democratic Party nomination? 
I think it will be because she really needs to win big here to see off Bernie Sanders once and for all. And there's a sense of frustration. You can see it in Hillary Clinton. Certainly saw it last week at the debate in Brooklyn, the brawl in Brooklyn, as it was called over here. Um, you could see that she was frustrated that she hasn't seen off this challenger. I mean, this is a guy who was considered a long shot and a fringe candidate, um, you know, eight months, nine months ago. Uh, and she hasn't really been able to see him off in that time. So, for Sanders, really, he needs an upset here to stay to really show that he has any hope of blocking her path to the nomination, as improbable as that even seems before New York. Um, and if it's a close race, I suppose it supports his claim that he's going to fight the nomination all the way to the convention in July. So she really needs to win big. Um, she has a 240 delegate lead on the magic number is 2,383. If she reaches 2,383, she's won the nomination. And there's 247 delegates up for grabs in New York, which makes it the second biggest uh, state in the Democratic race. So given where the polls are at, she has a lead of anything between 10 and 17 points. She should really win here. And if it's a home match for Clinton, it's it's even more so on the Republican side for, for Donald Trump. Um, now, he's had a torrid couple of weeks, uh, mainly self-inflicted uh, wounds, if you like. Um, but it's conceivable, isn't it, that he, he could even uh, uh, secure a clean sweep of, of delegates here. But if he has his, uh, uh, the big win we're expecting, what might that do to re-energise his campaign and to get it back on track? Well, I think it'll do a lot because he's going to be coming out of New York and going to five other states, uh, Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, Maryland and Pennsylvania. Maryland, Pennsylvania are particularly interesting because there's a lot of delegates at stake. So if he has a win in New York and a big win, it could give him the momentum going into those states. But the problem for him is that he needs to reach this, his magic number, which is uh, 1237 in delegates. And given where he's at at the moment, he's won in the, in the region of about 45% of delegates. And now he needs 61, 61, 60% of delegates in the remaining races to reach that point where he can win the nomination on the first ballot. And the view is that if he doesn't win it on the first ballot at the convention, which is the ballot based on all the state by state primaries and caucuses, uh, he really, it's all bets are off and it's going to be open season and something of a floor fight at the convention. He needs uh, to win over 50% in New York and to have that clean sweep of delegates, both at congressional district level and statewide. Now, Ted Cruz has kind of uh, decided not to publicly campaign. He's had a horrid time in New York when he came here. He was booed in the Bronx. He got a very icy reception at a at a Republican gala last week. So he's really kind of written off his chances in New York statewide, but he's focusing on district by district, hoping to chip away at the delegates um, at the delegates so that he would prevent Trump from reaching that twelve thirty seven figure here in New York and beyond. Is it looking in increasingly likely, Simon, that that Trump will arrive at the Democrat at the sorry Republican Party convention uh, in July with a uh, as the lead candidate, but short of that magic number of twelve hundred and thirty seven? And um, what's the latest thinking about you know what tactics the Republican Party establishment might employ in that scenario to to stop him getting the nomination? Well, it's looking very likely that he won't reach that target, even with a big win in New York. The two states that are ones to watch in the coming uh, in the coming weeks are Indiana on May 3rd, which is has a lot of conservatives, but also has a lot of the voters that have been going, have been voting in such large numbers for Donald Trump, the blue collar, young white men. Um, 
And then there's the California primary, the last primary in the Republican race, which is the final day of June 7th. So he needs to do well in both of those to have any real prospect of reaching 12, 37. But the window's really narrowed on him um, in the past races. And Cruz has shown that his ground game um, has proved much more effective than Trump. He's really shown Trump to be something of a novice politician, which he is. He's he's new to this game. Um, and Cruz has won a, a swept delegates at these state conventions where rather than holding statewide ballots, they pick their delegates, which go to the convention at state meetings and local meetings. And Cruz has done very well in places like Colorado and Wyoming and Georgia. And that's really um, that's really uh, riled Trump up. He's reacted saying this is a rigged race. Um, and you're going to see a very uh, bitter uh, convention if he gets to the convention with the major with the plurality of votes, but not a majority that he needs, and I think you're really going to see a very very heated and acrimonious convention come July because there's going to be that floor fight. There's going to be uh, multi ballots for the first time in 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 almost sixty years that this has happened. So uh, you're going to see some very um, angry horse trading going on and a fight over delegates state by state over the coming months and at the convention in July. And finally, Simon, on the Democratic side, if Sanders can keep somehow keep the race alive um, beyond New York. What are the key um, uh, contests to watch out for in the next uh, in the weeks ahead? Well, he'll be hoping that uh, on April 26th, a week from today, that he'll have some chance in the in places like Pe- Western Pennsylvania and places um, places like along the northeast, where the, along the northeastern coast, where he's done quite well uh, in previous contests. But the big one for Sanders is the West Coast, is California, uh, and that's got a huge delegate hall, the biggest in in the uh, Democratic race. So he'll be hoping to perform well there. The problem for him is that um, California, like all the other races in the Democratic race, is the, the delegates are distributed proportionally based on their vote. So. Uh, he really needs a landslide victory in California to have any chance of blocking Hillary Clinton's path to the nomination. And that's not looking likely at the moment. OK, well, uh, Simon, interesting 24 hours ahead. And you'll be reporting on that, of course, on, on irishtimes.com. Simon Carswell in New York. Thank you for that. You're listening to The Irish Times. And now the extraordinary story of the work by an independent body funded by some Western governments to acquire documentary evidence connecting the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, to war crimes committed in that country. The story is set out in fascinating detail in The New Yorker magazine by journalist Ben Taub, who joins me now from New York. Um, Ben, the civil war that erupted in Syria in 2011 in the the wake of the Arab Spring has claimed so many lives that, as you mentioned in in your story in The New Yorker, the UN has stopped trying to count them, but probably best estimate is about half a million and um, uh, many, many more, maybe five million people have fled Syria. Eyewitness accounts of atrocities um, are one thing, but documentary evidence is, is something else again. Now, you write in your uh, in your article about an organisation called the Commission for International Justice and Accountability. It was set up in 2012. It sounds quite a mouthful and it sounds like maybe just another organisation operating in the field of international criminal justice, but it really isn't, is it? It's a unique organization. Um, Can you tell us something about its work? Yeah, so this was a group that uh, was formed by a a Canadian war crimes investigator who had worked for prior tribunals, the Yugoslavia Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal, and he investigated as well for the ICC. In fact, he also had uh, some some history with uh, Ba'athist dictators. He had served um, as an advisor to Saddam Hussein's defense council during the Iraq tribunal and 
to his credit, made every effort to bring um, some semblance of due process to that tribunal, even though it turned out to be somewhat of a, an utter failure. Um, and so, in uh, in two thousand and at the end of two thousand eleven, um, he sort of uh, he he founded this group. Um, with the intention of collecting documentary evidence to preserve it so that when the war comes to a close, it wouldn't all have disappeared or been destroyed and the case could just be handed over to a tribunal that would be set up. This is before the political will exists to prosecute it, but he figured that you can collect evidence and organize it into cases um, even before there is a court. And uh, so they'll be saving potentially years off of the investigative process and uh, collecting evidence that would otherwise disappear. So it's an incredibly high-risk operation. He, he uh, built a team of, today they have about 150 people working on it. Um, around 70 of them are based in Syria. And those uh, investigators in Syria um, worked very discreetly uh, collecting documents from uh, security intelligence facilities and government offices that have been overrun by rebels and they wrap them up but they have to take absolutely everything because a defense counsel could argue that they had sort of selectively weeded out exculpatory evidence at the point of extraction so they have to take absolutely every document they can find in these buildings um, and then wrap them up and box them up and and often bury them in the ground or hide them in abandoned homes until it's safe to move them out of the country but radical Islamist groups especially in you know a lot of these uh, operating in a lot of these rebel areas especially in the north pose a huge threat to the operation even though they would be one would think sympathetic to the the cause of um, of uh, justice for for the, the president of Syria Assad um, because these documents are incredibly incriminating to have on your person uh, you have if you're driving a car with a hundred thousand Syrian government documents in them from security and intelligence facilities the, the first uh, intuition of, at a checkpoint might be, okay, this is a regime spy who's trying to move these documents to a point of safety. And the second thought would be, okay, this is a, you know, an agent of the CIA who is bringing them out for some foreign intelligence agency who has an interest in them. Um, and they just don't understand the concept of uh, bringing this to, you know, bringing these documents to Europe so they can be sifted through by analysts who are looking through them not for intelligence purposes, but for uh, to trace uh, crimes to individual criminal culpability. And that's what matters here with this internal regime documentation that is so much more valuable than proof, you know, that crimes are being committed. Because everyone knows there's crimes being committed. Everyone knows about, you know, airstrikes on hospitals and barrel bombs in crowded areas of cities. And torture, indeed, you know, as this case is about torture and murder in detention facilities, there's thousands of witness accounts from survivors. But what these documents have, what, what those lack, what that evidence lacks is proving that this is part of, you can show patterns, but you can't show that it's proof of a policy devised by a certain set of people who could then be actually criminally liable for those, for those crimes. And these documents trace these crimes straight up the chain of command to a policy devised by Assad's inner circle, approved by him, and then passed down multiple chains of command. And they have these documents coming from, uh, from Damascus, and they have, the capital, um, the central command, basically. And then they have other references to the same policy uh, you know, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, um, and thousands of pages captured from 
these uh, distant security intelligence facilities which reference the same policy, uh, report back up the chain of command on the success of the campaign, etc. Okay. And the policy itself was not inherently criminal. It was to um, it was inherently repressive. It was to uh, detain and interrogate basically all op opponents of the regime. Um, but then, in practice, as it was implemented, uh, tens of thousands of people were detained for illegal periods of time, um, tortured to elicit false confessions to crimes they hadn't committed so that then they could be prosecuted, um, you know, it, it lends sort of a legal sheen, they could be prosecuted in Syrian courts for these crimes of violence when they'd only been um, peaceful protesters and then could be locked up for years. Uh, and then, of course, tens of thousands were also murdered in the course, in the pursuit of this uh, information and in the um, the detention facilities in which they were held. Sure. And Ben, can I just come in as a result of the work of this commission, it, it, it shines some light in um, on the modus operandi of the Syrian regime in response to the the uprising um, there that, that, that followed in the wake of the Arab Spring in 2011. And um, we, we know the response of the Assad regime was it was swift and uncompromising. And one of the first things they did was to establish uh, a central crisis management cell. Can you tell us uh, what was that and, and how did it work? Sure. So on the, it was actually, we have the actual date from one of the pieces of paper that was captured from one of these facilities. It was on March 27th, 2011. Um, before Assad had even addressed the crisis publicly, he formed a secret committee called the Central Crisis Management Cell. And he personally appointed the Minister of Interior, the Minister of Defense, the heads of the security intelligence agencies, and the second in command of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, and a few other ad hoc members which appear from time to time, like his brother, uh, would, would show up at meetings. And every night they met in the Ba'athist Regional Command Building in Damascus, um, and they would discuss security problems in all governorates, um, all provinces of the country, with very, very, very precise information because they had an apparatus in which all information would be sort of hoovered up from all over the country by low-level agents and then passed through faxes and, and communications back to uh, the, the central command. And the reason we have so much good information about this crisis cell is because they made a mistake early on. They employed a young man named Abdul Majid Barakat, who uh, was a 25 or 26 year old guy to process all the paperwork. And he went in it with the intention of serving as an opposition mole. And so he was processing all these documents from all over the country, about 150 pages a day. And then he would draft a summary, which he would then delivered to the crisis cell for them to guide their meetings. And uh, after about close to a year, he defected and when he realized that they were sort of catching on to the fact that he was a mole. And he smuggled uh, more than a thousand pages out of, out of the cell, um, including the meeting minutes, including documents with Assad's signature. Um, you know, after, uh, sorry, I meant to mention that, you know, each, each policy that the crisis cell devised, they would then pass to Assad himself um, with a via a courier, and then Assad would review the minutes and sometimes uh, revise them um, with new proposals, sometimes cross things out, and then return them for implementation. And so every policy that they actually then pass down their multiple chains of command, because these are again these are the guys in charge of you know all security intelligence facilities, um, the entire Ministry of Interior chain of command, etc., Ministry of Defense chain of command. So these guys were the ones who could then pass these down as, as orders and as directives, and they would be followed. 
So the work of this guy, this really incredibly brave guy um, who you, you mentioned, um, Barakat, who, who was surprised to be hired um, uh, when they were looking for, for staff, as it were, to do the paperwork early on. His work is of extraordinary importance, isn't it? Because he, um, he the, the documents he smuggled out um, of Syria by by driving you know, two hundred and fifty miles, I think you said to the um, to get to the Turkish border. That, that work um, is that is the evidence that shows the direct fingerprints, if you like, um, of Bashar al-Assad on documents which um, give authorization to really atrocities of a variety of atrocities carried out by the regime. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, his 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 documents complete the chain of command. There are um, one thing that's quite interesting. In fact, the the actual policy that that we're focusing on that the, was that the group is focusing on for its case, and that I focus on in my article, was didn't actually wasn't actually found in Barakat's collection because he couldn't grab everything as he as he ransacked the building. Um, that was they they often when they would send these. Um, you know the, the high-level members of the crisis cell would would send these decisions as orders down the chain of command. They would basically append uh, the minutes to um, faxes. So they would send a letter saying, "Hi, this is the decision that we have come to from this meeting of the crisis cell. Uh, you'll find the the minutes attached." Um, and then they would send that letter and the minutes to distant provinces for implementation. And so that actually that policy was actually found in Derazor, in an intelligence facility in Derazor, about 350 miles from Damascus, where um, the CJA investigators, you know, collected tons and tons of documents, and then the analysts in Europe sifted through them and found found this uh, this letter, um, which then is referenced over and over and over, and then and then they see that same letter referenced in other meetings of the crisis cell um, that do come from Barakat's collection, because you know a few weeks later there's a there, he has the meeting minutes from something that um, from one of their from one of their discussions, which uh, which talks about their August fifth meeting, but the actual minutes from that August fifth meeting were found far from the capital. Um, you know, in, in, a, in a collection that was was captured rather than um, leaked from oh, Barakat. Okay, but his evidence provides important corroboration then in some cases of, of, of evidence existing elsewhere. And Ben, Absolutely. just to jump a little bit um, to another aspect of your story, because there's so much in your in your article. Can you tell us something about Hospital 6, 601 or 601? Where does that fit into the, the um, what went on there and where does that fit into the picture of the story you, you, you tell in your, in, in your article in The New Yorker? Certainly. So we have these these policies, and they map onto the, the cases of individuals. And so in the story, in the second half of the story, once we've gone through all of the, the, the collection of the documents and what they show and how they show culpability, we trace a, a victim who was collected as a, as a part of this policy, was, was arrested and interrogated and tortured, and became very close to being murdered. About a year into his detention, he was incredibly sick. I mean, these were cells in which he was kept in a cell with 170 people at one point, a small, relatively small room with 170 people inside for months. Then he was moved to another cell, which was a solitary confinement cell, but he had 10 other cellmates living there as well. And he got very, very ill. His eye was dripping pus. His legs were gangrenous. And he was transferred to Hospital 601, which is a military hospital in Damascus, actually within sight of the presidential palace. It's at the bottom of the hill on which the presidential palace is is placed. And when he was brought there, the doctors, you know, and and nurses 
as he was walking through the corridor were beating him mercilessly and calling him a terrorist. And this is a kind of treatment that seems unbelievable. I mean, when he was telling me this, I was very skeptical, although I'd heard of atrocities in this hospital before. But the UN did an investigation that found that doctors and nurses were regularly co-opted into the violence in, in Hospital 601. Um, and then when he was chained to, uh, he was chained to a, a bed with two other cellmates, and then eventually at night he needed to go to the bathroom. And so he walked into the bathroom and he found in the first stall, he opens the door and there's two or three bodies stacked up. Um, and then he's very confused and he closes the door and he walks to the next stall and there's two more bodies, you know, with their eyes gouged out and they're emaciated and there's another body by the sink and he starts to feel as if he's disconnecting losing his grip on reality and he walks out and the guard tells him go back in he says where am I supposed to pee and the guard tells him to pee on top of the bodies and this is I mean just absolutely gruesome stuff that seems unbelievable but again the UN found that bodies were kept in the toilets in multiple facilities uh, detention facilities in Damascus and eventually, he, you know, he witnessed a murder while he was in this hospital from another guard. And eventually, though, he was transferred out. Um, and, and importantly, when he was sent to this hospital to begin with, they told him not to use his name, but to use the number 1858 as his identity. And that, that, those numbers became very significant because several months after he was released, and after he gave his testimony to a group of activists who published it with a dateline. So we know that his testimony from, from 2013 is the first instance of this uh, to, to, um, to have been co later corroborated. About in, in January 2014, a military police photographer defected and he worked regularly at Hospital 601. And his job before the revolution had, to been, photograph had been to photograph the bodies of... Um, for, you know, crime scenes that involving military personnel, uh, suicides, traffic accidents, etc. But then when the revolution kicked off, he and his team started photographing the bodies of detainees who had been killed in security facilities. And they were doing it in Hospital 601, in the garage bay outside and in the morgue. And so these bodies that he was seeing in the bathroom, with the eyes missing, with emaciated, showing signs of torture, resembled a collection of 55,000 photographs that he smuggled out of the country showing 11,000 different bodies, who, who most of whom had been tortured to death in very, very clear and horrific ways um, in the patterns that are described by other witnesses who survived. And all of them has a four-digit number, like Mazin's 1858, on, the, on a piece of paper or drawn onto their head or drawn onto their chest with a thick marker. And so uh, these are called the Caesar files because the ph photographer was given this alias when he defected and when he spoke to investigators and, and forensic analysts. And for, for the longest time, you know, this is the, the FBI went through these photos and determined that they hadn't been altered in any way. Um, and for the longest time, this was thought to be the hardest evidence that there was a policy of torture and murder in these facilities. But again, you don't have individual criminal culpability. And so that's where the sieges documents become really important because they can trace these murders directly to the policy signed by Assad. And what finally Ben does Siege, which is the, the shorthand names for the, this independent commission we mentioned at the outset, um, 
they have smuggled out something like, I think, 600,000 documents out of Syria, many, many more uh, documents secured, some within Syria. It's too dangerous to remove them at the moment. But um, mm-hmm. what do they hope to do with all of this evidence, ultimately? Where will they, um, where can they go with it to, uh, um, is there any possibility at the end of securing war crimes convictions against Bashar al-Assad or other members of his regime um, Certainly. at the end of this? Certainly. So uh, they're convinced that the evidence in their um in their possession is sufficient to convict him and other members of the regime, high-level officials of crimes against humanity, including murder, torture, um, illegal detention, all kinds of, there's a, a whole modes of liability and crimes that uh, that are very clear here. And um, the US ambassador at large, who has gone through these files as well, told me that it's the uh, most complete evidence since Nuremberg for internal regime documentation. Basically, what is missing is the pol- political authority granted to give jurisdiction to a court. So the UN, only the UN Security Council can give the International Criminal Court the authority to have uh, jurisdiction over crimes committed in Syria by all parties, not just the regime, of course, you know, because other groups are committing war crimes as well. There's ISIS, there's Jabhat al-Nusra, there's rebel groups that are committing various war crimes, all of which should be investigated and all of whom should be brought to justice. But in 2014, Russia and China blocked a resolution to give them that authority, saying essentially, well, we need to wait until the war comes to an end before we even think about justice. And so this group, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, can only wait and hope that the political situation will change such that, and and hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, the killing will stop. And at that point, there will be enough of a call for justice that a body like the International Criminal Court or a separate tribunal established specifically for Syria could be set up. And at that point, they just hand over all of their evidence to um, to a court or to a prosecuting body who can take it from there. Um, they, they view their role purely as an operational uh, step that is uh, that is preserving evidence that would otherwise be destroyed. Okay, well, Ben Taub in New York, it's a great story. And thanks a lot for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thanks to Tom Hennigan, Simon Carswell and Ben Taub, to our producer Declan Condon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. 